You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey everybody, tonight we're debating capitalism versus Marxism, and we are starting right now. With our capitalist guest, Destiny's opening statement. Thanks so much for being with us. The floor is all yours, Destiny. Hi. Uh, well, as of March 2021, Americans ranked the economy, jobs, and handling of the coronavirus. Uh, oh, hold on. Let me start this over. Fuck, I don't normally read these. I wrote one of these just for you today, okay? I hope you feel special, all right? Just for you, um, James, all right? First time ever. As of March 2021, Americans rank the economy, jobs, and the handling of the coronavirus and leadership in Washington as the four most important issues facing our country. Economies do not thrive under socialist regimes. Doctors in Cuba moonlight as taxi drivers. Liberal countries with socialized healthcare have, no, have not fared much better than the U.S. in the handling of the coronavirus. Any socialist regime will necessarily involve the bureaucracy of Washington even more heavily in their economy. Any country that has attempted to realize a fully socialist economy has either failed completely, such as in the case of the USSR, destroyed large sectors of their economy, such as in Venezuela, or been forced to embrace more neoliberal economic policies to realize true growth in their economy, such as in China or Vietnam. Liberal market policies work better in both theory and practice when it comes to efficiently allocating resources to maximizing the economic productivity of any country, and we've seen this play out time and time again across a wide variety of markets and countries throughout history across the globe. It's also important for us to realize that no economic organization is in itself inherently moral or immoral. Rather, we should view them as tools to effect some greater output for our country that we can later utilize and distribute in the most fair manner to most of our citizens, creating a bigger pie, so to speak. While socialism may sound good on paper and on Twitter, the destruction it would wreak on the wealth of our country and the oppressive restrictions it would place on our businesses would not leave any Americans better off than they are now. It would be foolish to enact protectionist or socialist policies on our economy while exploding, um, while uh, while developing economies, while exploding developing economies like India and China are moving in the exact opposite directions. Socialism implies two major things, changing both the means and mode of production. The means of production change in such a way that completely disallow for private investment or ownership and a change in the mode of production such that we no longer produce goods and services for a profit. Instead, businesses are only started with the approval of some governmental body with equal decision-making, the management of every worker, and the goods and services that are produced in any society are... Um, or what some governmental body dictates, irrespective of market forces. It's likely, the course of this debate, my opponent will suggest that we take after Nordic or Western European countries, citing that things like socialized healthcare or subsidized education are powerful programs that address many of the underserved needs of Americans today. While this is true, I'd also like to remind everyone that we have spent the last decade reminding conservatives that the government simply providing welfare has absolutely nothing to do with socialism. My if my opponent believes that strong social safety nets and welfare programs are important parts of the government, I would remind him that most liberals would also agree. Consequentially, there are four major hurdles that no socialist I've spoken to has adequately addressed, and they are 
are as follows. Number one, how do we decide which businesses are allowed to exist in a socialist society without allowing capital investment? Is this done via some government bureaucrat or council? If one cannot get their idea approved or find sufficient other workers to operate their business with them, is that, a, is that new business simply not allowed to exist? Number two, is any form of investment whatsoever allowed in a socialist society? How do businesses raise additional capital for expansion? If I want to expand my business and open new stores, is it contingent upon me finding other workers willing to buy in and own part of my new expansion of business? If that new expansion grows, am I diluting the ownership of my current workforce? Do I need to dilute every employee's ownership every time a new worker is brought in? How does that affect their democratic leverage in said business? How are labor markets, number three, how are labor markets determined in a socialist society? What if everyone wants to become a teacher? If we remove profit incentives and wages from society, socially dictate where goods and services are allocated, what incentive would anyone have to pursue a socially necessary job they do not wish to pursue? Would they simply be forced by the government to do so? And number four, how can we calculate which goods and services a nation needs if we do away with the commodity form? The calculation problem has never been adequately addressed nor solved for any country. And even in the case where it's brought up within businesses, your final inputs and outputs are still decided by market conditions, not votes or councils. There you go. Thank you very much, Destiny, for that opening statement. We will kick it over to Pogan. Want to let you know, folks, our guests are linked in the description, and that includes if you're listening to Modern Day Debate via podcast. We put our guest links in the description box for each podcast episode as well. And so check those links out. We really do appreciate our guests. And Pogan, thanks so much. The floor is all yours. Yeah, of course. Can you hear me? Absolutely. So... I want to thank Modern Day Debate and uh, Destiny for having me and agreeing to participate. The topic is Marxism versus capitalism, which is an interesting way of phrasing things because the primary function of Marxism is to critique the capitalist system and point out internal contradictions within it. My opponent, based on what I understand, he can disagree in a moment if he chooses, is an advocate of capitalism in the sense that he believes it should be supported and should be regulated or modified in some way and that there's no need for consideration of substitute economic systems because capitalism is the best we have and no other proposals should be warranted. My focus for tonight's debate will be explaining why the collapse of capitalism is a near empirical certainty and why that lends itself to consideration for what will emerge subsequent to capitalism. Much of Marx's focus concerned the internal contradictions of capitalism. That is the competing social forces in the capitalist system that would lead to a series of crises. Understanding that capitalists, people who privately own means of production, took from laborers a portion of surplus value, the value of a worker's labor beyond what's necessary for them to sustain themselves and be ready for a subsequent working day, not consumed for expenses as profit, Marx stated they would continuously use part of this surplus value as reinvestment into their business, the development of new machinery, new technologies to improve labor efficiency, etc. However, this increase in the productivity of labor paradoxically meant that the amount of labor required to produce commodities would decrease. Because Marx held to the labor theory of value and therefore treated the objective value of a commodity as a product of how much work went into it, socially necessary labor time, the value of commodities would decrease relative to the value of invested capital. This is what causes the central problem within capitalism, the tendency for the rate of profit to fall. The tendency for the rate of profit to fall has been empirically verified on multiple occasions with various researchers showing a tendency for profit rates to decline since the 1940s or earlier. If the general tendency for profit rates to decline towards zero maintains, market economies will enter a situation in which profit can't be extracted and capitalist firms will have no means by which to pay for expenses. In such a situation, economic collapse becomes realistic. This is the exact sort of situation in which a move towards a subsequent system like socialism would be facilitated. This isn't suggested to that the tendency for the rate of profit to fall is the only problem. 
Another major contradiction is the so-called fundamental contradiction, which leads to the crisis of overproduction. For a time, capitalists will find new ways to efficiently produce commodities, and those that undercut others with these new techniques will surpass the competition in terms of profit and total capital. This increased efficiency drastically increases the number of goods on the market, driving supply higher than demand. Because supply is higher than demand and the capitalist wants to continue profiting, he must find ways to cut costs, the most popular of which being laying off a portion of his workforce. This further drives down demand because the laid off workers lack the wealth to purchase the commodities in question. Despite resources not being scarce and products existing in abundance, profits decline, the economy experiences a crash. This crisis of overproduction and its aftershocks occur constantly in capitalism and serve as the explanation for various crises, including the Great Depression and the 2008 recession. Regulation and band-aid solutions may temporarily postpone the effects of overproduction, but, they, but ultimately the market will either temporarily correct or it will collapse. All previous crashes have been corrections that have resulted in widespread economic distress, starvation, loss of property, etc. The conditions in which such a crash would result in collapse of the system become increasingly likely as typical responses to this crisis, like lowering interest rates and giving out subprime credit deals, become non-viable. My objective here is simple. Given that destiny advocates for a capitalist system of some description, and given I'm more than happy to provide the empirical evidence for the claims that I have just made, what does it mean when destiny says that he is a capitalist? Is he saying that he believes that the system can be fixed and protected from these problems, or is he saying that he accepts the critiques but doesn't have a replacement system in mind or thinks proposed replacements are bad? If it's the former, then how does destiny address the problems exactly? If it's the latter, what's the difference between destiny and a Marxist who simply believes the critiques are correct? One can be a Marxist and subscribe to the predictions made of the capitalist mode of production without necessarily advocating for any particular flavor of socialism or communism. I yield the rest of my time. Thank you very much. Pogan, also, folks, want to let you know if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral debate platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics. And we really do hope you feel welcome no matter what walk of life you are from. And with that, gentlemen, the floor is all yours for open conversation. Um, well, where do we want to start? Yeah, so... I, I don't know what your understanding of theory is or what the your understanding of the critiques are exactly, but do you have any specific objections to the critiques that I laid out? Are you familiar with them at all? Anything like that? Um, I know that there's been some empirical work done on the, uh, the tendency of the rate of profits to fall. I know that those are, I think, highly contentious. I know it, um, I think like 30 or 40 years ago, I think it was taken a bit more seriously, but I, I just, I haven't heard this brought up much. So I don't know if this is something that is like hotly sure. debated right now that people think that like uh, the tendency of profits to fall is going to be a serious problem in the future. Um, I know that in Marx's time, that was something that he, he theorized and he thought that he was already seeing it. But I mean, it kind of seems like the looming automation problem where people seem to think that workers are going to re be replaced or pro the profits are going to fall and the lack of extraction is going to ruin everything. But that sure. just hasn't seemed to happen. Yeah, go ahead. So, I mean, I mean, the empirical contention is there. It's obviously not the case that anything in economics, Marxian or otherwise, is settled science. But mm -hmm. in preparation for this, I collected um, maybe like 15 or 16 different studies specifically concerning the tendency for the rate of profit to fall. And a couple of them are as recent as 2020 or slightly prior by a couple of years, you know, 2016 or so. Mm -hmm. um, the majority of them either begin in 1949 or slightly prior or 1960 and then go to 2020. Mm -hmm. And all of them report a general decline in the rate of profit in the U.S. non-financial sector 
um, such that it would seem like even if you're a non-Marxian economist, that's been empirically strengthened. And obviously there's going to be disagreement, but even non-Marxian economists um, like Adam Smith, who was, of course, ostensibly in support of markets, found that there was a tendency for the rate of profit to fall. He was just unsure of the cause. So if there's agreement that there is a general tendency, barring temporary corrections in the capitalist system, I think the more interesting argument would be the cause of the tendency for the rate of profit to fall, because that's going to deal with like the labor theory of value and other concepts specific to Marxian economics. But if you don't agree that there's a tendency, we can get into that too. Um, I, I mean, whether I guess whether or not a tendency exists, I don't know if that would point somebody in a particular direction. Um, I guess kind of like for the closing part of your statement that you gave, um, mm-hmm. like it might be such the case that the you know tendency of profit to fall is a real thing. Um, if that were the case, I don't know how. Uh, I, I don't know what proposed uh, other economic solution would alleviate that concern or, or would get us away from that, or even if necessarily capitalism wouldn't be able to survive in that environment without also like heavy government intervention. But. Well, I mean, the whole point of the tendency is that there may be brief periods of correction, you know, maybe the capitalists temporarily find some way to maximize productivity or increase profits for a brief period, but it's a general tendency. Like even Marx conceded that there would be points in time where profit rates would temporarily rise, but the general tendency over long stretches of time was decline. And the point is, if the empirical evidence hashes out and that tendency maintains, it follows that the rate of profit would eventually get close to or reach zero. And you can see why in a system that's predicated on the extraction of profit, as capitalism is, profit rates approaching or reaching zero would be extremely bad for the system. And that's the point where you would start considering subsequent systems and replacement systems. Okay. Right. So it's it's less it's less like a super nuanced, intricate discussion of like what specific flavor of socialism I'm interested in, though we can get to that. At this point, I'm just saying something like, even though you believe uh, capitalism is the best that we have currently in modern times, um, let's just grant for the sake of argument that the tendency hashes out empirically, you would agree that that would warrant some consideration of a subsequent economic system, preferably one not predicated on profit, right? Um, I mean, if we were to say that the rate of profit at some point in the future were to hit zero, yeah, that would be a pretty big problem for sure. Right. So we can we can drop the studies. I'm not I don't expect you to like read and review 15, 16 empirical studies, obviously. But mm-hmm. given that there is at least conditional acceptance of an antecedent like that, you know, we're talking about like, let's assume charitably that that is empirically hashed out. Um, the conversation of what subsequent system will emerge is really predicated on one thing if we want to avoid the sort of problems that are central to capitalism and profit extraction. And that's just going to be something like a system that doesn't predicate itself on the extraction of capital and the accumulation of profit. And the obvious answer to that is going to be socialism. Because you mentioned in your opening statement, you were talking about like um, resolving immediate problems in the current system, talking about pragmatic policy considerations, and those are good things to consider. What I'm interested in is, because I am obviously a believer in the empirics, what are we going to do at such a point in time where capitalism ceases to be viable economically? That's my concern. Okay. Right. So based on what you understand of socialism, what would you say your issues with it are conceptually? I know you um, mentioned a couple of things, but you, just a brief recap. Yeah, I guess so. My The four problems that I have kind of laid out are, so the first one is how do we do capital allocation, the socialist society, which businesses are allowed to exist? The second one is how do we, are we allowed to invest in businesses? How do businesses grow, right? If you can't raise capital. The third one is how do we determine labor markets in a socialist society? Different people seem to have different ideas about this. And then the fourth one is related to the calculation problem. 
Right. So I think I think the calculation problem is going to be the central one there, and there are some other problems related to resource and labor allocation more generally. Um, I'm an advocate of something called the long learner simulated market model that was proposed by Alan Cottrell and Paul Cockshot. There's a great paper on that called Is Economic Planning Hypercomputational? Something about Cantor diagonalization. I don't remember the subtitle. And then they also have a book called Towards a New Socialism, where generally they outline how using various computational models on a computer as early as a 2004 Dell Optiplex, you can actually perform the sorts of calculations necessary to efficiently allocate resources and labor and respond to hypothetical price signals while simultaneously avoiding the pitfalls of the ECP and the local knowledge problem. Across how many inputs and outputs? I, in the paper, they specifically take the example of the Soviet economy at peak, which is something around 10 to, 100, 10 to 15 million goods um, that need to be allocated rationally. Now, that's relative to modern capitalist economies. That's, of course, small. But the main consideration there is that that's just a proof of concept. Obviously, since the time the paper was published and written and that the computer technology used in that paper, computer technology has only continued to escalate. So as a purely conceptual thing, it doesn't seem like there's prima facie reason to be skeptical that we would computationally be able to allocate some sort of allocate resources and labor efficiently within a central planning system. And then I have one other response to the ECP and the LKP specifically, but I want you to go ahead and respond. Um, yeah, I don't know how to engage with the point without, because I, because I haven't read the book, obviously, but I, right. I mean, like, I'm, I'm super skeptical that somebody that put together a math equation says that they can calculate hundreds of millions or billions or trillions of inputs and outputs for uh, an economy as large as the United States or, or, or almost any country on the world, maybe say for like small island nations or something. What is that skepticism born out of though? Like what, like what about that proposal makes you so skeptical? The fact that we have trouble drawing up even incredibly basic algorithms to predict like labor markets in the United States or in any other country, but we can, we do believe that we have algorithms that can accurately predict every single market input and output irrespective of market forces. Sounds so unbelievably fantastic to me that I would be willing to bet a large sum of money without knowing anything at all about the book that it is impossible to do or that that sure. book does not make a convincing argument for it. Like in order to have the theoretical foundation to make those predictions, I would imagine that we would have solved so many other far simpler economic problems first. Sure. So I think I think the disagreement here is going to reduce to considerations of the uh, labor theory of value versus the marginal marginal theory of value. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the, the the reason the ECP and the local knowledge problem are taken to be so problematic is because it's talking about at its core what how you establish what is valued in an economy in a hypothetical economy. But there's a presupposition there that the sort of value, desire, want, whatever you want to call it, is predicated on marginal utility. That is. The reason in a market economy a diamond is more valuable than water just has to do with the subjective desire of rational actors for a diamond over water, even though water has more, strictly speaking, utility. Mm-hmm. That assumption is something that is challenged by the labor theory of value. The, co- the hypercomputational diagonalization, yada, yada, the cockshot cultural model mm-hmm. deals specifically with resource and labor allocation predicated on the LTV rather than a marginal theory. Um, And then at that point, given that that assumption has been pointed out, the only question remaining would be on what grounds would somebody object to the labor theory of value as it would be applied in that sort of situation? Because I obviously am a proponent for it. And I think that a lot of the criticisms of the labor theory of value that have been made over the decades just don't understand the theory or equivocate on some term that Marx is using, stuff like that. But the point is, 
It seems improbable based on current market forces that deal with marginal utility. It is not impossible in the way that they were describing in the paper in the book using um, a labor value interpretation of how things would be, how commodities would be valued in a market. Um, I mean, regardless of whether or not we we are utilizing labor value theory or the labor theory of value, um, I think what you're describing is colloquially referred to as the transformation problem, right? Um, right. Re- regardless of whether or not we we believe that this problem exists or is a contradiction inherent to the labor theory of value, um, or, or whether or not we believe in the labor value theory, um, I I don't know, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that information. Like even if we do believe in in the labor theory of value. Um, I mean, like this is just one way of analyzing or understanding the relationship. Let me let me try to other, let me try to yeah. phrase it a different way. Um, you can think of it like this. Basically, the allegation that I'm making is that the economic calculation problem and the, then the local knowledge problem are begging the question against the Marxist. And what I mean when I say they're begging the question is that there's an implicit premise in the argument that desire, value, want, whatever you want to call it, is predicated on marginal utility. But if the Marxist rejects that, if the Marxist just says, well, why, why the hell would I accept that marginal utility is the de facto understanding there? Um, the marginalist has to justify why marginal utility is the only understanding of value in an economy. I feel like it's, I feel like it's the opposite, though. Um, the problem is that the labor, the, the labor theory of value doesn't allow for something like marginal utility to exist. So as a, as a theory, it works on paper. But that's problem- not true. That's, that's not accurate. The, the, the not labor accurate? theory... Well, so when the labor theory of value is talking about value, it's talking about value in the context of surplus value, necessary value through labor, socially necessary labor time. But Which that doesn't, under- but that, but that doesn't account at all for what the actual price at the end of the day. Right, is we're getting, we're getting there. Yeah, but that's what Marx- the marginal utility right has the problem with. Right, it's sure. essentially saying that you can have your labor theory of value, but it doesn't seem to, um, it doesn't seem to explain the prices that we get at the market at the end of the day, which is where marginal value comes in. Right. Sure. So, so the point is like. Marx, Marx accounted for market forces. He accounted for things like supply and demand. An empirical analysis of the labor theory of value over time has shown that there is, in fact, a correlation between the calculations you can run for labor value in a hypothetical market commodity-based economy and the actual market prices of those things in real economies, specifically the U.S., the global commodity market, et cetera. The point there being, if the marginalist wants to say that we must use marginal value to understand market prices, the advocate of value in the labor theory can just say, not only is Marx's understanding of value distinct from that, we have empirical evidence of the correlation between la- uh, socially necessary uh, labor and actual market prices in real economies. So then if there's that empirical basis for it, why would we accept prima facie that we have to use marginal utility for value? That's what I'm getting at. Okay, it wait, just seems, wait so can you explain to me? How, so um, understanding that value, um, which is calculated, I, I think your um, value is calculated as like all the socially necessary labor that's gone into producing a given good or service is going to be different than price, um, which is the the market price for a given. Marx good or understood service. value to be different from market price. Right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So, h- how have you resolved this issue of um, prices never seeming to line up with the labor value theory would say they would in, in a given market? Can you? Can you explain how what I'm saying? What I'm saying is that the way the empirical evidence bears out is that they do line up, obviously not perfectly, but there is a strong correlation between the calculations done for labor value and the sort of market prices we observe for commodities in the modern global commodity market. Can you, wait, can you explain to me that this is my understanding, and I could be wrong. Um, I never took a class on Marx. My understanding is that the labor mm-hmm. theory of value would say is that if we produced one banana or if we produced 10 trillion bananas, or I'll say widget, one widget or 10 trillion widgets, that the price for that widget in any given market would be the same at the end of the day. But clearly, empirically, we know that just wouldn't be the case. No, At equilibrium, only at equilibrium. 
it accounts for it accounts for like major distinctions in how wait a prices, second wait a second can you sure. say what, what do you mean by when you say in equilibrium when the market is at equilibrium such that there's no overproduction or underproduction of a given commodity I would, it's wait, true wait, that those, but i thought i thought sure. that you calculated i'm just trying to follow because i because i might understand yeah you're i thought fine. that the way that you calculate the final value of an item is by the socially necessary labor that goes into the production of that item. Why would equilibrium? The value, not yeah. So, so let's let's try to like take a step back here and like use terms accurately. Okay. So, what the LTV is talking about is objective value of a given commodity based on its socially necessary labor time. That is distinct from market price the way that Marx talks about it. Obviously, mm-hmm. those are subject to other forces. The only claim that I'm making, I'm not making any other claim right now, is that there is utility in in capitalism for the LTV on the basis that those sorts of calculations of objective value are correlated with market prices. They may not be causal, but that gives us some sort of predictive utility to say something like, well, we don't have to necessarily just use marginal utility. We can use labor value to make predictions about market prices. I'm just trying to say, just one second. I'm just trying to say like that provides us with predictive utility. So it seems like you can operate without the implicit assumption made by the marginalists, which rec- which is a required assumption to make for the ECP and the LKP. How do you even begin to calculate things like the, the social cost of labor? Like, how do you even begin to 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 figure out the calculations of you know this is what an hour of a carpenter's labor is worth? This is what an hour of a computer engineer sure. this is an hour of a janitor. How do you even begin to? Because I feel like those calculations are going to be pretty important to figuring out if yeah. the prices at the end of the day are matching whatever your LTV value is. Yeah, it's based on it's based on averages in a commodity market. I'm if I were to be more specific than that or get into the actual math, we'd be basically doing calculus three for three hours. But the gist of it is the calculations are operating on aggregate labor time and ab- aggregate like skill, which itself is a Marxist concept in a given commodity market. And from those aggregates, you can draw those sorts of calculations. When you say a given commodity market, um, what do you mean when you say commodity market? So Marx understood a commodity to be an object that has labor put into it, somebody worked Mm -hmm. on it, and then that object, which becomes a commodity as soon as it's exchanged, is rationally desired by actors in a market. So Mm -hmm. I made something with my hammer, and then other people in a market wanted the thing that I made with my hammer. At that point, it becomes a commodity. That's specifically what he's referring to, because I'm sure you've read... You know, people love to like throw up the mud pie objection based on labor labor value, and that's a misunderstanding because nobody, no rational actor in a market economy, barring some fringe case, is going to desire the exchange of a mud pie. So, would you are you using price then at the end of the day to determine how you value the labor, how you figure the value of the labor? Like, how do you figure out like in terms of the demand for a given good or service for the demand for a commodity? How, how does that factor into um, how, how you calculate the socially necessary labor or the cost of that labor to create it? If yeah, I mean, I mean, price. like, sure. So, like I said, it's it's not that market prices and uh, the you know the value that Marx is talking about are one and the same or even causally connected. That's not the case. Like I, I I've said this a couple of times. The claim is merely that there's a correlation when we perform the the sort of calculations for the objective value of commodities. That calculation is entirely just predicated on understandings of labor in the LTV. Market price is not being incorporated at that point. I'm just saying there's a correlation between that value and market price such that you can make a claim like the LTV has predictive utility. I guess it feels a little circular to me. Let me see if I can explain all this. Um, It feels like you're saying that we would figure out. So first, we would say that there's not a causal connection between the price and the value of a given commodity. Yeah, right. Yeah, but in order to determine though 
the, the value of the labor that goes into a given commodity, we have to look at the price somebody is willing to pay for it at the end, no? No, no. no. You don't, okay, you don't how look, do you, so, What are you looking so at at the end? Exchange value isn't itself market price. Exchange value just means people want to trade it on a commodity market. How do like, we measure long- how much somebody wants to trade for something, though? So in a market, I feel like that would be a price, the, the dollars somebody's willing to, to spend on something. How do we figure this value out? Though? I'm trying to figure Exchange, out Exchange. So it's, 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 qua- it's, not, it's not quantitative. It's more qualitative. All Marx means when he says exchange value is something like the likely possibility for exchange exists. That's why I offered the mud pie thing. Nobody, generally speaking, is going to want to exchange mud pies in a market in a modern market economy. But people do want to exchange things like chairs, cars, um, phones, computers, those sorts of things. It's a qualitative description of just something that fulfills a human need, such that it is likely to be exchanged. It's not a calculation like market price. So yeah, I understand that. So I'm trying to figure out how you figure out the socially necessary labor. How do you value that? That's what I'm still trying to figure that out because if, like, this is what I it mean, feels like. like I, I, that, I'm ta- this, this is what it feels like to me. Sure, and so sure. you can tell me if I'm missing something because it yeah. feels like in order to figure this out, we're vaguely alluding to price at the end. But then when I try to circle around that, it's like, well, hold on, we're not talking about price. Um, and then we move to that side of the equation. We're not really talking about price. We're saying what somebody would be willing to barter for or where somebody would trade for, but not in terms of buying or selling. Yeah. But I mean, I'm I trying to figure it. out well, how do we ultimately, yeah, I just, I guess, I'm just curious, I, like how we ultimately value anything. How do we figure that out? Yeah, I get what you're saying. So I'll try to I'll try to break it down again. There is objective value of a given commodity at the point of manufacturing, right? At the point of labor. And then Wait, what does ex- that mean? Meaning something becomes a commodity and therefore has socially necessary labor imbued in it in the manufacturing process. Like I take raw materials, mm-hmm. I put them together, I make something, that makes it a valuable commodity. Right? Okay. And the exchange value is merely a qualitative description of people wanting to exchange that thing. It is not a reflection of market price. The claim that I'm making, again, is just that socially necessary, uh, that objective value determined by socially necessary labor time has an empirical correlation with market price such that it has predictive utility. But it is not one and the same. Just like a marginal utility, uh, a theory of marginal utility in economics has some sort of predictive utility based on its own understanding of value. The only question is going to be which theory has more predictive utility. That's okay, so how scientific, that's comp, that's how competition between scientific theories works. Sure. So in terms of your, so you take a thing, you imbue it with some labor, and then it has some value because people are willing to trade for it um, without using like, without taking like a marginalist view of this, um, how do you address when you say market equilibrium? What is an equilibrium to you? It just means there's it just means there's no underproduction of over or overproduction of a given commodity. The commodity is produced exactly the way it's or exactly okay, wait, wait. how much it's desired. Yeah, I understand. This is hardcore begging the question, or maybe it feels like begging the question to me because I would say that the desire for a given being a marginalist, right? I would say that the desire for a given commodity is going to change moving along um, a, a quantity supplied at a given price, right? Yeah, I'd agree with you. Market equilibrium. Wait, 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 but you is, can't you can't agree with me though, right? Sure, because, I can. Yeah, I can. Market equilibrium is a theoretical concept that's used to deliver certain points, especially in the LTV, right? He's talking about how things would function hypothetically at market equilibrium. Marx is not saying that market equilibrium is something that has been achieved or will be achieved. That's a different understanding entirely. And I just want to make, a, I, yeah, just, I understand. Just, can I just make one, oh, yeah, go one more quick comment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the other comment, like this all is within the purview of the problems that you listed for central planning, specifically the ECP are very 
uh, intensely predicated on accepting marginal utility. And I'm just saying something like, not only do we have a competing economic theory that does not invoke marginal utility, that competing economic theory has empirical predictive utility on par with the marginal theory. So why would, say, me or anybody else trying to understand economics de facto accept marginalism? That's really the question, because you have to accept marginalism to grant that the ECP is a problem in the first place. I guess I just, I don't feel like, uh, I, I guess I just don't feel like the LTV is adequately explaining what's going on in terms of prices at the end, because it feels like we're alluding to prices at the end, not value. We're alluding to price at the end to figure out what the value is. While Why do you think we're alluding to price well, at the when end? Because when you say things like market equilibrium, I don't understand how you figure out what an equilibrium is without price. When you say it's when you're not overproducing or underproducing a good, how do you determine if you're overproducing or underproducing something without a price? Well, you're, you're the one running the ECP. You presumably think a capitalist market economy is capable of rational resource and labor allocations. So what I you can take what I'm saying to really just be something like uh, equilibrium is perfect rationality in a market such that everybody's needs are satisfied. All the goods and services that are exchanged in a market reach their intended destinations. They're not overproduced or underproduced. And, well, I, okay, and I'm i saying something, just, just one more quick yeah. point because you invoked the price. I'm not saying that that necessarily has to be cashed out in terms of an understanding of price. You could understand that in the within the context of the LTV, just in, in some sort of like qualitative understanding of what use value of a given commodity is. That's why Marx specifically talks about use value with respect to the LTV and commodity production. He's describing that sort of qualitative experience that is invoked later for um, an understanding of resource and labor allocation. I mean, I, I, it seems, I understand what you're saying. I, it just, I, it hasn't been adequately demonstrated how we would ever come to what any of this, like at the end of the day, we don't have any actual value. Like everything is relational in terms of the socially necessary labor that goes into a given product and figuring out the, the final value of a product. But when I'm trying to figure out how, for instance, how do we figure out if equilibrium has been reached for you to just say, well, when no overproduction or underproduction has occurred or when needs are satisfied, I know what that means in a, in a market sense, such that nobody is willing to pay more for the next product or such that the cost of producing the next product um, is no longer profitable in a given industry. I can, I can understand these terms when prices. Sure, I can, I can answer the equilibrium point really quickly, right? Uh, okay. Yeah. With, without, without, without just saying no overdevelopment or underdevelopment or no um, overproduction, or underproduction, because that's just circular. That's big. I want to know, how do you know when you've produced enough of a given good or service using the labor theory of value? How do you know that? Well, you, you presumably accept that in a, in a hypothetical economic system, maybe the LTV or just take some other competing hypothesis, there are mechanisms by which you can measure market demand without um, invoking price. That's the entire point of things like central planning and the Cockshot model that I propose. They are able to collect information from rational actors based on their labor in such a way that that labor calculation allows them to rationally allocate resources and labor. So that's how, how would one. you okay? Just, wait, 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 wait. This, this is a multi. Ask, wait, I understand. I just got to ask for that. Okay, yeah, first yeah, sure, one. Okay, sure, right. Sure. So, like, in terms of me and my wants, how, how, let's say that we talk about a car, right? How would you determine what I want? Let's say in a society, what car does everyone? Every single person in society technically wants a Lamborghini, but not sure. everybody in society wants a Lamborghini at one million dollars. So yeah. you're using a lot of terms that I understand, and I'm. This could just be my ignorance in in, in Marxism, okay? Because I'm coming at this hardcore from a capitalist perspective. If you haven't, if you can't, well, obviously, right? Yeah, so of my understanding, because I'm I'm using quantity demanded at a given price. Like, what is somebody willing to buy for a given price? So in our society, every single person desires a Lamborghini, but they don't desire a Lamborghini at one million dollars. At that price, not everybody can afford one. Um. So so you move along. I'm not like, just Destiny. I'm not disagreeing with you. The whole point of the cockshot. Cock 
Contral proposal is that in order to resolve the issue, there's a simulated market. That's how you establish. Well, my answer that. is, or my question yeah, is, how do you simulate? How do you simulate that market? How? You just collect. So, in much the same way that you would collect information from people based on how they spend, say, U.S. dollars or yen or whatever currency they so choose. The cockshot cultural model is talking about a comparable level of, of information collection based on actors in an economy. The difference is instead of exchanging things that are predicated on capital and extracted labor value, they're ex instead exchanging their own labor through labor vouchers. And the distinction between that and money is going to be something like these are not in circulation at the point of sale, if you want to call it that. Um, they are destroyed such that there can't be accumulation of capital. And obviously, you know, the, the main objection to this is that we're dealing with a theory, we're dealing with a hypothetical, but grant the people in an economy are exchanging labor vouchers that represent their labor value. At that point, much in the same way that you collect information from actors in a market economy based on how they spend their money, you can collect the exact same kind of information from actors in an economy through how they exert and spend their labor, and that allows you to perform roughly comparable resource and lab labor allocation in central planning relative to how you would do it in a market economy. That's so, the thrust of the Cockstock okay. cultural model. So let me see if I can kind of understand this. So you have a person, he works um, at a job, and in exchange for doing that work at that job, he is paid mm -hmm. in labor vouchers. Now, the type of labor, labor voucher or the amount of- I wouldn't even say paid because that kind of presupposes like- Okay, let's like not an say exchange paid. of capital. We'll right. say he's compensated, compensated right. with a labor value or with yeah. a labor voucher. Now, the compensation that he gets is going to be determined by the equilibrium um, of the whatever good or service that he's producing being perfectly matched, and then it's no. going to no, that's no the 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 value of his labor is just a consequence of um, how much socially necessary labor time went into the production of the commodity. Yeah, that's but, the only but, but, wait, 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 but, but in order to determine how to value that socially necessary labor time, that commodity has to be um, demanded at a certain market equilibrium. That's no, I, I mean, maybe maybe I was being confusing, but socially necessary labor time is just how long it takes to get produce a given commodity at average conditions with average intensity. That's all Marx says about the concept. It has no, like at that point, but the problem is how, how do we, one second, wait, just, just, just one second. Equilibrium does come later in the understanding. That's true. But at that point it, in just determining the objective value of a given commodity, all that is relevant is socially necessary labor time. Okay, but that's clearly not the case because if every single person spent their socially necessary labor time producing the exact same commodity, the value of that socially necessary labor time would necessarily decrease as the market falls out of equilibrium, no? No, because there are other factors in a capitalist market economy such that the socially necessary labor time required to produce commodities is subject to a variety of different circumstances, such as technological innovation, improvements in productivity, improvements in efficiency. Wait, wait, wait. None of this is answering my question. So if every single question? person in society were to produce widgets, wouldn't mm -hmm. the socially necessary labor time, wouldn't the value of that decrease as every single person produces the exact same thing because the market would fall out of equilibrium? Because earlier, no. my challenge to you as part of the transformation problem is that every single person produces the same thing. It seems like you would have the, the, the value for that would be would decrease and you wouldn't be able to account for that because, well, hold on. They're all Why would the value for that decrease? I'm not understanding. Because you said earlier that the value is only calculated such that the market is in equilibrium, that there's no overproduction or underproduction. No, that's okay. So I see the confusion, right? Again, let me let me reiterate. All, all I am saying with respect to how we determine objective value of commodities is this. At the point of value determination, right, the only relevant quality is socially necessary labor time. Equilibrium as a concept is invoked later when you start talking about exchange of commodities in the market. 
But at the point of production, the only thing determining Marx's understanding of value with commodities is the socially necessary labor time. And the point is, when I'm talking about things like labor vouchers, mm-hmm. when you're paid a wage, and I'm, you've probably heard this before, when you're paid a wage, that's representative of a fraction of the labor value, specifically the necessary labor. The capitalist is taking from that person what is in excess of that. I'm proposing a system that functions comparably to a market in terms of resource and labor allocation. The main distinction being, of course, worker ownership of the means of production, which is a separate thing, but also that people are compensated with vouchers representative of the full value of their labor rather than a portion of it. That's the main distinction. Okay. Um, I understand. I believe I understand mostly what you're saying here. So my problem is that I think that all of your answers so far have just been incredibly circular. Um, I feel like if I ask a relatively basic question, um, I, I, I guess you could claim on the counter. Definitions in a all... scientific theory are, of course, going to be <clears throat> circular. They're definitions. What? Oh, yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah I, I'm just Go saying on. that it, it's not even so much that the, the answers are complicated. It's more that the answers have all become incredibly circular, such that this theory is self-justifying. So, for instance, because now what I want to ask you is a question I've already asked. You, you're telling me that the ultimate value of any commodity is going to be determined by the socially necessary labor time that goes into it. But I'm going to ask, well, how do you figure out how to value that socially necessary labor time? Um, and then you're going to, I don't know if you're going to go back to alluding to an equilibrium. Then I'm going to ask how you figure out the equilibrium. Then you're going to say, well, it depends on um, there's no overproduction or underproduction. I'm going to say, well, how do you know those overproduction or underproduction, and then you're going to, and then we just keep moving around in circles and circles and circles. And it feels like what we're trying to do, especially with the introduction of labor va- uh, vouchers, feels like what we're trying to do at the end of the day is we're trying to use this absurdly complicated proxy for and what a capitalist just call market forces, right? How about we just pay a person a wage um, for a particular uh, good or service, and then once a person has paid a wage, they decide what to buy or sell something for, or the market reaches equilibrium when sure. a number of people have agreed to buy or sell a, a commodity at a given price. And then all of these things are like taken care of very neatly in a normal market, rather than doing this incredible strange way of exchanging labor values for socially necessary labor time that I still haven't gotten an adequate answer for how we even figure out how to value it other than this is the value of how many hours went into something when something reaches market equilibrium even though I don't know what equilibrium is because you're happy to explain that to you sure, hold on, yeah. your definition of equilibrium is just no overproduction or underproduction but overproduction and underproduction are usually determined when you figure out how much a person is willing to buy something at a, at a certain thing but you're telling me price isn't relevant here and then you're saying that we can figure this out by doing like surveys or something else but then when I ask you how do we figure out how to survey things, then we go back to, well, it depends on how much our labor voucher is worth from our socially necessary labor time. And then when, when I ask you, how do you figure, right, do you, it, like it all feels like very, 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 very circular. Like I, I, at the end of the day, like it all seems self-justifying, but I have no grounding whatsoever for like how much sure. to, to produce one widget. How do I figure out like what that voucher ought to be worth? For, how do I figure out how to value that socially necessary labor time such that we're not talking about mud pies? Yeah, so respectfully, the allegation that I'm dealing with circles or I'm being circular is not actually an objection, and I'm happy to explain why. The reason it's not an objection is because the the context of this conversation is two competing economic hypotheses, right? And within scientific hypotheses, because economics is a social science, there are going to be specific terms and there's going to be jargon that is just defined that way for the purpose of providing the economic theory or the scientific theory, some sort of predictive utility, right? This is always the case in scientific theories. All sorts of scientific theories, regardless of the field that they're in, define things a certain way for the purposes of the theory. And of course, as you know, definitions are ultimately circular because a definition is just a definition. So what I'm saying is this. If the question is, why am I saying these things and then just saying, well, that's how Marx defines them or that's the understanding employed. The reason is I'm saying you can understand those things in such a way 
that they're just granted for the purpose of the evaluation that Marx is doing, and then evaluate if the, if the scientific theory is worth consideration based on its predictive utility, right? And I told you at the outset of this, like 20, 25 minutes ago or so, that not only does it have predictive utility, I have the studies and the empirical evidence such that I can demonstrate the predictive utility. The overall point being this, I'm giving you a, a way to structure society and respond to um, the desires and needs of rational actors in an economy that does not invoke marginal utility, right? The hypothesis that I'm dealing with does have predictive utility. And I'm just saying something like, unless there's some sort of fatal objection to that theory or some sort of internal contradiction you can expose for me, that is a valid way of responding to the ECP and the local knowledge problem and the other things that you listed off. If you're confused about any of the definitions I provided to you, I can go over them again, but it's just not interesting to say something like the definition of, is circular. Of course it is. He's defining things a very specific way with the ultimate goal of establishing what value is and making predictions about the capitalist market economy, the mode of production. Sure. So when I say my problem is that the definition is circular, I understand that at the end of the day, um, in any system that begins with any sort of axioms, of course, things are going to be to some extent circular. I mean, they have to be cir circular. Course, in, the, yeah. in this sense, you're using circular as a standard for the word consistent, which any system that we uh, construct ought to be consistent, obviously. Um, however, I guess my problem then, maybe I shouldn't say that it's circular. My problem is that it's, it is it is both circular and seems to not map onto reality, which I guess maybe is where our actual contention is. So here is a question that I would ask how you would resolve this or predict this in terms of labor value theory. So you can take somebody that writes an incredibly important piece of literature, a history major, PhD student to study a ton of history, um, and he contributes something to the human body of knowledge. And then you can compare all of the work and effort and, and, um, and education that goes into him being able to produce his labor, and then compare that to somebody like me, somebody that's able to, uh, at the end of the day, um, garner a hot, much higher price for the good or service that I produce. And I do so with far, far, far less training. Um, how does the labor value theory or the labor theory of value, how does that map onto or be predictive for what each of us will be compensated with in, 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 in our current understanding of how economies work? Well, if you're talking about you specifically, I take it that nobody employs you unless you have some sort of contract I'm not aware of where people take like a tiny percentage of your profits. But we'll just grant that that we'll grant that you're both laborers in the sense that Marx understood, because all a laborer means there is a rational actor in a capitalist economy that's paid some wage in exchange mm -hmm. for a good or service, right? To be Let's ultra just, clear, even Marx would uh, would assure you that a contractor, the same as an employee, is having some value extracted from them. So it is correct that I'm not like a W2 employee, but there is obviously value being extracted from me as there's a capitalist somewhere up the road, whether it's Bezos or the owner of Twitch or whatever that's extracted Right, there's some value. hypothetical capitalist in space that's okay. taking value from you, right? The point wait, is hold like- Hold on, wait, real quick. I'm sorry, I'm just I'm trying to be retorted. Yeah, you're, you're fine. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. not somebody in space. It's every time a sale is made to me, there's probably somebody upstream that's making money off of the work that I'm doing. That's- Right, so when you get like a Twitch subscription, whoever's taking a portion of that subscription is taking labor value from you, exactly. technically so speaking, not, right? Not, well, yeah, not technically, actually. This is actually a thing, right? Yeah, taking and, and, labor okay, value from A contractor and a, and, a, and a worker are being exploited in a Marxian sense in the same way. Okay, go ahead. It is correct that you're being exploited. That's true. I'm glad we've established that. The point is, you can, if the question is like, whose labor is worth more, it's just a consequence of two different forces in the LTV. Wait, right? my, it's not a question of whose labor is worth more. Sure. I'm curious, how does the labor theory of value explain the wide chasm between our wages when it feels like the labor theory of value would predict that my wages in the market would be so much lower than a history majors? That's my question. Yeah, because, because market prices are such that you're you're more valued than the person that you're competing with. You can't use like market prices though, because now you're just talking about 
this is just like marginalism, is it not? If you're just talking about market prices, what's some, you're telling me that my socially necessary labor is is market prices are compatible. Market prices are not incompatible with the LTV. If I say something like, well, it's just a consequence of supply and demand. There's a higher market price for whatever service Destiny is offering. That's compatible with the LTV because just because there's a correlation between socially necessary labor for a given good and market price doesn't mean that the correlation is fixed. What I mean by that is there are times where the correlation is obviously not going to bear out. So let's take you, right? You're a Twitch streamer. I'm totally lost. So I'm either, I just don't know anything about Marx. I'm totally lost. My understanding is that price has absolutely nothing in terms of determining like socially necessary labor value that it, it's, it actually is totally independent of those things when Marx is working with, within the labor theory. That's value. correct. I'm saying there's a correlation. The LTV isn't trying to understand market price. It's trying to understand the commodity value. Yeah, right? but, you so that's me why... that, but you told me that there is a predictive power implying that you should, you ought to be able to predict the market price given the labor theory of value. Yeah, right? of course. Just yeah. because there's predictive power doesn't mean there aren't going to be instances where the prediction doesn't bear out. You're just describing a situation where very realistically, because obviously I take it you make a decent living off of what you do. Obviously, what you're doing is earning more market value, more money than something like you know your average New York construction worker is doing. And that's fine. An economic hypothesis is not trying to establish something like this will always be the case no matter what in a market. An economic hypothesis rather is just trying to say two things. The first thing is what is, an, what is a good understanding of value such that it can describe the capitalist system? And then two, what predictive utility does that understanding of value offer us? I'm saying the LTV does have predictive utility that is bared out empirically, but there are obviously going to be instances where the two are at a mismatch, such as in the case of Destiny, the streamer versus mm -hmm. the construction worker in the Big Apple. That's totally mm -hmm. fine. So my question here would be then, because now we've come up against a huge contradiction that seems to be incredibly adequately like solved by marginalism, or I can understand why it would work completely in, in, a, in my normal understanding of economics. So my question would be, because if we, if you want to keep going, I could give you hundreds of examples where this isn't going to line up. Um, if you have no way to understand the massive discrepancy in price between the, the, what I sell versus what a history major would sell, why would I want to use your theory over a marginalist one? Or can you tell me, is there something that I can't explain using a marginalist theory well, that I think the labor theory of value more adequately explains? Yeah, sure. I think there's a specific property in your case, and I don't want to, it's it's like weird saying you specifically, so I'll just say stream. And you, you can know? just say an entertainer. Go ahead. Right, right. Entertainment. Like, like the thing is, it's it's going to be challenging to say that an entertainer is producing a commodity because a construction worker is producing a commodity, right? He's either building a house or he's building something that's then sold to another construction firm, whatever the case may be. Wait, so to be really clear, does Marx not consider any services as, as commodities? Is it only goods that are produced? The labor theory of value is concerned with commodities chiefly. There may be consideration of other things, but it's primarily trying to describe how value of commodities in a market economy is determined. So the question there is going to be whether or not an entertainer, a Twitch streamer, or something like that is producing a commodity. And that's an interesting question because the way Marx hashes out commodities, the way Marx understands commodities, it doesn't seem prima facie like it's going to line up with what an entertainer does or what a service provider does like yourself. Because you you are paid for what you do, you are compensated for what you do what you do, and I'm obviously happy to say you're putting in labor. It's just that 
I don't know what you if what you're doing is the production of a commodity. That's another my, question my, entirely. Okay. And again, I totally could be wrong because I don't understand. I don't know as much about Marx. Okay? My understanding is that Marx absolutely says that both goods and services are commodities that are in, ter- in terms of how Marx would look at it. That like a doctor performing an operation, that that service not only is that a commodity, but the person that hires the doctor could still be extractive upon that commodity. That services aren't like accepted from from the labor theory value. The services services are both considered commodities and under an, a labor theory value analysis. Sure. So services can be commodities given that they meet the criteria of what a commodity is. What I'm saying is you you cited a particular example where you're a Twitch streamer, you know, online entertainer, something like that, you know, only mm-hmm. fans, plenty of examples of this. A com- to be question- clear, a commodity is just something that human labor is acted upon, right? Human labor acting upon prior human and ex- labor or human well, labor acted upon a natural resource. That's my, that's my understanding of what a commodity is, Marxian-wise. Right? A, a commodity is an object that is produced through human labor, but then is also, it has exchange value in addition to that. So a commodity has to have exchange value for it to be determined to be a commodity. And that's the point that I'm making with respect to like a Twitch streamer. Yes, it's true that you're being compensated for labor. You're obviously a laborer. I'm not going to say you don't do labor. But the question is, if you want to say like the LTV ought to be applicable to a Twitch streamer or an OnlyFans entertainer or something like that, what exactly is the commodity in question here? What commodity are they producing such that it would be within the scope of the labor theory? Um, the commodity would be that my labor is acting to produce a given service that is consumed by people that watch my stream. Is the service that you're producing exchanged on a market? in the same way that a chair would be, in the same way that a computer would be? Because that's what I'm struggling to understand. Yeah, it could be, of course. It could either be somebody could pay a subscription to my website or they could perform um, some service of their own, like watching an advertisement to do it, yeah? Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to see how that's going to like line up with the sort of commodity that Marx understood. Because okay, when, now, you say, so- when, you, when you say it has exchange value in the sense of like a streamer, an entertainer or something, right, it's... And it, you're operating within a market in the sense people are buying something from you. They're buying your time, your entertainment, you know, the funny things you say online, the video games you play, the debates you have. They are buying something, right? But that's not the same as having exchange value in the sense that like a chair is going to be bought and sold on a commodity market a billion you know, times every day for the next two weeks. It's not exactly the same thing. I'm struggling to see if it would be fair to say that like that sort of entertainment, that sort of service is within the scope of the labor theory. This is okay. Well, this is highly problematic now because I think it's like 80% of the US economy is, is a service, is a service economy. So if you're telling me that you're I'm not saying services aren't commodities. I'm saying you gave a particular example where I'm struggling to see. Okay, how do you measure the service of a doctor performing an operation then? Yeah. So I think I think the service that a doctor is providing is something that's reproducible on a commodity market. Ultimately, the doctor is providing the service of treating people back to health, identifying diseases, identifying injuries. Okay, wait, let me, okay, wait, things. hold on. Without talking a lot, okay, I'm just very precise on this. What do you mean when you say that? A service that can be reproduced? A doctor, let's say a doctor performing an open heart surgery. How is that a commodity? But what I do is not a commodity. How, how is it like a tradable object or something with exchange value? Yeah, so I'm not super familiar with how insurance pricing works, but I would imagine you would agree with me if I said something general like specific treatments and specific programs that doctors provide to clients, patients, we'll say, right, are things that are subject to market price. That is to say, the va- the market price of like 
a triple bypass is something that is determined by market forces. You would agree with that, presumably. Even if it's just insurance playing on it, that's still a market force that ultimately influences the price of that treatment. Yeah, as a marginalist, of course I would. Prices are determined by what people are willing to pay for a given good or service. Yeah, of course. Right. That's that's the distinction. This is just genuine confusion on my end because I don't know how Twitch works or anything. But what I'm saying is like, given that that is subject to market forces, I, I don't know if it would be apt to describe, say, Streamlabs donations or Twitch subscriptions or stuff like that as subject to market forces and, and therefore having exchange value mm-hmm. in the same way a triple bypass has exchange value and is subject to market forces. That's the somebody, clarification I'm seeking. What, what about somebody that like is just working a cashier at a McDonald's, but their labor isn't actually acting on like a burger or a piece of food. They're not actually involved in the preparation or any of that. They clear, they only exclusively work in the service side of things. Well, the labor in that case is the calculation of and then the subsequent storage of capital exchange for the hamburgers or whatever the business is selling, right? Storing the money, calculating change, that sort of stuff is in and of, is in and of itself a form of labor. You don't have to like literally make the hamburger to be doing a form of labor in a fast food restaurant. Sure. But then I would argue, I don't literally have to be like downloading a video onto somebody else's computer to be involved in the production of, you know, some piece of entertainment that somebody else is consuming. You're not going to, you're not going to get disagreement from me there. I wasn't asking the question as like some sort of gotcha game. I was asking the question because I have no clue how the Twitch sub thing actually works. But if you're saying something like. We we can replace that with just like a, a, a movie actor. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that movie actors, um, doctors, obviously lawyers, right. The professional managerial class, the services that they're providing are absolutely subject to, um, both socially necessary labor in producing those services. And then they have exchange value on a commodity market. Yeah. So how would the labor, how would the labor theory of value adequately explain why any entertainer is paid so much more despite the fact that so much less labor or training is required in the entertainment they produce why are they paid so much more than any than like a history major or an english major that like undergoes so much training in order to produce uh you know history books or something why, why is the entertainer like compensated so much more i can explain this using like market forces or marginalism i don't know how you would ever explain this using labor value theory and again to be i think clear, i think the only reason a- i'm asking this yeah, yeah, is because yeah. you're yeah. telling me or it seems you're trying to make the argument the labor theory of value is going to have some predictive force that's just as good as my uh, marginalist outlook of things, if not better than. And it seems like right now it isn't even adequately explaining things that I currently understand. My next question for you is going to be, is there something that it explains that I can't understand under a marginalist view? Because Yeah, I think, I think, again, the point is like when Marx talks about value, that's distinct from the value that you're talking about. We'll get into the correlation in a second, but we need to understand exactly what the scope of the theory is, Right. So it seems like there's a little bit of equivocation on what exactly value is taken to mean here. You're saying value is just the desire for a good or a service um, exemplified through market prices. What a market price is, is just an aggregate desire for a given good or service. And that's well, fine. But to, that's be, wait, to be super clear, ahead, yeah. I have not said that. I'm being very careful because Marx understands that value and price are two separate things. My explanation, my understanding is that value under a Marxian theory is determined by all the socially necessary labor that goes into acting upon something that is either a natural resource or something else that socially necessary labor is acting on. That's the value. Price is just what somebody is willing to pay for something. I'm being very careful not to conflate these two things. But when I try to ask you how to determine any of this value is determined, it feels like you're the one that's saying, well, we would look at like market equilibrium or what somebody I'm just saying, I'm just saying, sounds like you're saying, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just saying that there's equivocation on what the scope of the theories is. That's why I was saying, when you're talking about marginalism and what it's attempting to describe, right, I accept that there is an explanation for 
market forces such that it would determine why like a doctor, for instance, is paid so much more than a history teacher or an English major, what you were describing. The point is that's that sort of thing is outside the scope of the labor theory. The labor theory is trying to describe what the value of a reproducible commodity is based on the labor put into it. And that itself is going, that's an objective understanding of value, not subjective, which is okay. determined by socially necessary labor time to reproduce commodities. Gotcha. So then my next so the question, theories, the okay. theories are dealing with two different scopes is the point. You're asking a question like, well, how does the labor theory of value account for something that the labor theory of value isn't attempting to put okay, sure. within its scope? To be clear, so now you're, it feels like you're saying now, or it seems as though you're saying now that these two things are explaining two different things, but it, it seems at the beginning of this conversation, you offered that this was a competing and alternative hypothesis to explain the exact same things that marginalism explains. And you're asking me why you said that the marginalist needs to defend their perspective on why you would believe the marginalism over the labor theory of value. But now it seems as though you're saying, well, hold on. And these two things explain totally different things. It's not fair that you're trying to make my theory account for everything that your theory explains. It feels so like it's changed it, to me. Yeah, sure. So, so if the question is like, what utility does the labor theory provide over marginalism? I would say something like, marginalism is ultimately just concerned with how price is influenced by market forces, those being supply, demand, the desires of rational actors. The mm -hmm. labor theory is concerned with evaluating value as a consequence of productive labor. And that's something marginalism doesn't place within its scope. So the well, best it, case it doesn't, scenario, it, do, it doesn't just, do just that. A sec, I, well, I just want to finish, yeah, I just sure. it, finish what I'm saying, though, right? Okay. The point, the point is like that's something that's explained by the labor theory of value in a nominal, predictive way that isn't explained by marginalism. So, if the question is, what value do I get out of the LTV that isn't given to me by marginalism? That's the answer to your question. Sure. To be clear, so you're saying the problem with marginalism is that it doesn't predict value within the scope of its theory for for labor, right? It doesn't take into account the, the productive forces of labor when it performs an evaluation of market sure. value. Well, that's because that definition of value exists only under Marxism. Of course, it doesn't take into account that. Like if I create right, a new but theory the, but and the I call it like, like, if I call it Star Trekism, and then I say, well, your theory doesn't account for the term Star Trekism. Well, of course not. That's because value is a unique term the way that Marx uses it here, right? But, but the point is like we have a comparable theory that though it's not necessarily dealing with market prices within the scope of what it's trying to describe, right? It does account for the productive forces in a market economy and the productive forces of labor while still possessing predictive utility, right? There is utility in that theory in addition to what it's describing that falls outside the scope of the marginalist theory. So what I'm asking is if you want to present, because remember, this is all talking about the ECP and the LKP. If you want to present the ECP and the LKP as some sort of fatal problem for central planning, I'm basically just asking, like, what is the case for the LTV either A, being false, or B, having less predictive utility than marginalism, given the exclusive scopes of each theory? Well, so because that's, my that's understanding what the ECP is that this depends has, on. Oh, okay. I, I wasn't even aware of that. I, I didn't know that the ECP was an actual challenge to, um, like, the relationship that exists within the labor theory value. I thought sure. the ECP more played upon the fact that calculating at these great levels is literally like a P. Well, let me, P do you mind problem. if I clarify real quick? The, the problem, the, the problem that it's highlighting is a problem for central planning. I'm saying that in the ECP and the LKP, there is an implicit premise. And the implicit premise is that the sort of information that is going to have to be collected in a centrally planned economy is the exact information sussed out by a marginalist understanding of value. That's what I'm saying. That's why I accused it of begging the question. Not because I think like, 
Well, but even in your LTVs, system, even even using the LTV, the, that calculation problem, um, even if we throw our, our marginalist understanding aside, that would still have to figure out what equilibrium is, which is which seems you would still have the exact same. Even if I fully subscribe to the labor theory of value, it feels like I could still run into that problem of how do I calculate what market equilibrium is? If we're just trying to talk about how productive forces of labor function in an economy or trying to understand what predictive utility each economic hypothesis can give us, equilibrium may play into that. But I don't think it's true that the LTV does not account for equilibrium. The LTV is describing capitalism. It's not describing central planning. It's saying, ultimately, what value, as Marx understood it is, is a consequence of socially necessary labor time required to produce commodities and exchanges in a market are really exchanges of labor. Now that exchange may have a correlation with market price, but it's not one in the same with market price. Okay. Um, we could probably move on to the next thing. I, I We can let the audience decide. I feel like not my, um, I'll, I'll give you the last one on this. So my feeling the, the, is that it seems as though we don't really have any way to figure out how to socially value anything. Um, everything feels incredibly circular, which I guess isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it feels circular in a sense that not only is are the definitions all circular, they, I don't know where the predictive utility is, other than the fact that it can predict value, which is a variable that only exists under this Marxian understanding, so it can predict its own variable, but that doesn't sure. seem to map onto anything that I understand in the economy, and it seems we've come up against at least one circumstance where it doesn't seem to adequately map onto what our expectations would be economically. I think we could come up with several more as well, um, but I, I, I just, I don't feel like I have any idea whatsoever after this conversation. Like, if somebody were to ask me after, oh, well, how do you think he figures out how to um, figure out, like, uh, what one hour of socially valued labor is? Like, how would he determine the cost of that socially necessary labor to produce a thing i would or, or the value of that i would still have absolutely no idea like i, I have no idea market equilibrium i got but i don't even i have no idea that my my feeling my problem is that i i don't think that any of that has been adequately demonstrated and it doesn't sure. map onto um anything i currently understand and it, i don't know where the predictive power comes from other than predicting an outcome of its own variable which is built into its own equations i think you sure so 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 the response to that is very simple like first the examples that you've provided are one of two things. They're either instances of things that fall outside the scope of the labor theory of value, and thus it's not an objection to say something like, well, how does it describe this? Because it's a scientific hypothesis that expresses a clear intention to describe something else, and that's without outside of its scope. And then the point about having you know definitions being circular or things that are just defined a certain way, or ultimately the explanation is circular, like as I said, you know, 15, 20 minutes ago. It's a scientific hypothesis, and a lot of scientific hypotheses, including marginalism, by the way, just stipulate things a certain way for the purpose of the predictive utility that they're trying to offer or the explanatory power that they're trying to offer. The labor theory of value is offering explanatory power for how things are valued in a capitalist market economy based on the productive forces of labor and how labor factors into the ultimate exchange value of things. What it is not doing is trying to provide a complete holistic account of market prices. To say that it is, is to equivocate on what Marx means by value. And to criticize the theory for not describing that is to just say something like, it's failing to describe something that by its own admission is outside of its scope. But we can move on to another topic unless you want to continue talking about the LTV. I can present you with the empirical evidence that I mentioned earlier for the correlation between labor uh, value determinations and market prices for commodities in a commodity market if you're interested in that. Um, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't doubt that those correlations exist, but I think that those correlations can all be incredibly easily understood under a marginalist view. So I don't know why I would need labor theory of value to understand all of that. And I think that there would be a great number of exceptions, um, especially in, in academic fields, that the labor theory of value just wouldn't be able to explain at all.
I mean, if that's the case, then you're just saying they have comparable predictive utility, but there's something that the LTV is offering that marginalism isn't, which is an account of the productive forces of labor. I, I wouldn't say they're comparable predictively at all. I would say that the labor theory of value might accidentally stumble upon a right answer at some points in time, but a marginalist theory will explain exactly why and exactly what a given price will be in, in a given market. Given no, 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 that's that's not the point. Like comparable can mean maybe like the predictions in marginalism are slightly stronger or the predictions in the LTV are slightly stronger, so long as they're generally, ge- generally comparable. But if there's some explanatory power offered by the labor theory of value as a scientific hypothesis that a marginalist theory of value would not possess, say, accounting for the productive forces of labor and how labor factors into the value of goods and services and commodity exchanges, then that is explanatory power offered by the labor theory that is not offered by the competing hypothesis. And generally in science, when you have roughly comparable predictive utility, but one hypothesis has more explanatory power than the other, you defer to the one with more explanatory power. Wait, so are you saying that a marginalist can't factor in labor into the final cost of a good or service? I don't understand how they would do that without invoking the labor theory of value. Why would you need to invoke the, can, can we run through an example of that? Or I, I, I totally don't understand. Sure. That. So, so marginalism is dealing with marginal utility and ultimately what marginal utility is, it's just an expression of the desires of rational actors in an economy. That's what supply and demand is. When something mm-hmm. has high demand, all that means and marginalism is that it has high marginal utility. That's the point of the theory. It's describing market prices, right? But in that description, all that's really being described is how rational actors express their marginal utility or the marginal utility of goods and services. That expression does not incorporate, as Marx said, the productive forces of labor that go into the creation of commodities and, or, good, or goods and services in a commodity market. How does it so not incorporate the, that? I don't understand. Because, like, because it's outside the scope of a marginalist theory. The point so is like- when I, you, when, I, when I go to purchase a good hmm. and I'm analyzing the, the final cost of this good, am I not directly taking into account the cost of labor? No. How not? Well, how, how, how does a marginalist view the final cost of that product? If the not marginalist, Yeah, the marginalist views the final cost of the product as merely a consequence of its marginal utility. And what marginal utility is, is just an expression, again, of desires in a market economy. That's what I'm trying to tell you, right? In one case, we have, so, so let's put it this way. We have two theories. They each provide some predictive utility such that there's a correlation between- Wait, 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 can we, focus, can we just focus on this one statement, okay? Sure, sure, sure. So you're saying sure. that a marginalist only focuses on the cost as what a person is willing to pay for something? I'm saying that marginalism by its own lights is concerned with the marginal utility of goods and services and how that factors into market prices. What about and the marginal what cost I'm saying of in addition, producing a good? What I'm good. saying in addition to that is something like, there is a competing understanding of value that isn't necessarily causal for market prices, but possesses a comparable correlation with market prices, and it's describing something that has, um, you know, has import on a commodity market. That being the productive forces of labor. So in that situation, if you grant that that's true, I know you don't. We'll get into that in a second. But in that situation, given that one theory would have more explanatory power, you would defer to the theory with more explanatory power. That being the labor theory. Okay, gotcha. I think I understand it. I disagree with almost every single part of this. I don't know where you want to start. Um, 
I, like, I, I don't agree that a marginalist doesn't take into account the cost of labor when determining the final price for any good or service. Um, maybe like a rational actor that purchases something that doesn't, but the supply of that given good or service is going to be determined by the costs that go into it. So like you will be able to supply a given product that it'll have to be at a higher cost, which means the supply might increase or decrease based on the demand for it, right? There's two different sides of the equation that you have to look at, the consumer side and the supply side. Um, firstly, and then secondly, I guess we can't really bring it up again, but I, I still don't feel like I have any understanding how the labor theory of value talks about any of these things in terms of predicting price when I, we, I guess we never really settled that in the last part. So maybe we can just focus on, maybe I don't understand something in terms of you saying how a marginalist doesn't take into Well, I account. want to address the first thing you said first. Yeah, go the, for it. The thing, yeah. So again, I think, I think we're just sort of talking past each other here a little bit. All I'm trying to say to you is that unless you're some like Frankenstein economist trying to merge the labor theory with the marginalist theory, the marginalist theory, since you've described yourself as an advocate for it, is exclusively concerned with how market prices emerge as a consequence of marginal utility. Mm -hmm. That's what it's seeking out. Mm -hmm. And to say that marginal utility is somehow concerned with the productive forces of labor would require another argument. You would no, have it to explain. It absolutely would not. Well, how, how is the labor of a given good or service necessarily correlated with the desire for that good or service by a rational actor? Because there will, be, there will be a supply of that labor at a given cost. That's not relevant. We're just talking about how is marginal utility. How is it sure, not relevant? So the, determining the final price of a product is going to determine the productive forces that go into it, like the cost of that labor, which is going to be determined by the supply of that labor, right? Because when we're talking about marginal utility, all we're really talking about is the extent to which rational actors in an economy would desire a good or service, right? That concept in and of itself is not correlated with the labor that goes into the production of a commodity. What I I'm feel like we're is, using Marxian definitions, though, while we're trying to look at a marginalist point of view. Like, I disagree that that's how prices are determined in an economy. It's just what a rational actor would be willing to pay. We've right? already been over this. The LTV is not concerned with describing prices. It's it's concerned with describing value of commodities. And the I'm value is you, something that only Marx is only a Marxist is concerned with, and I have no care in the world. for. Of, no. So I'm going to immediately concede everything if you're going to tell me that the labor theory of value is far better at predicting value because the labor theory of value is only talking about this use value or exchange value or this labor, of course it is, but that's because the margin no, doesn't, because I don't know what this is. It does, I don't think it has any relevance to anything we're talking about. I think you're misunderstanding what I'm saying, right? What I'm saying is that the labor theory of value may not be exclusively describing the same thing as a marginalist theory, but not only is there a predictive correlation between what the labor theory of value is describing and market prices, the labor theory of value has more explanatory power than the marginalist theory, that being explaining productive forces of labor and how they factor into value. But that's not and you true. want to say it, it, once no, we just well, I, I'm, I'm getting to what I think you're about to say, right? No, you're, you no, want to say you literally you just say, said you're, you're saying that it's more the labor theory of value like, is able to determine the predictive theory of value of the final thing, taking into account these marginal right. variables. Of you course, want, it is. You, you want to say that the margin, like marginal utility, the way value is understood in marginalism, incorporates the productive forces of labor. It factors in labor. And I'm saying that is outside the scope of marginal utility. If you want to argue otherwise, if you want to say that the subjective desires of rational actors in an economy are somehow correlated or caused by labor forces, there would need to be an argument for that because that's not the orthodox understanding of marginal utility. You're telling me that a mar so you're telling me that there aren't marginal utility ways of understanding both your final good or service and the labor that goes into it. There's not like a marginal product of labor that exists. This is not. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm you know, I'm presumably there may be some economist out there that tries to incorporate the two or develop an understanding. I'm Wait, saying no, of that course, the system, this is like standard. Saying, this is like the standard. Do you mind if I? I, I just want to finish the sentence. Right? Okay. The, the point is that the system you are specifically advocating for, unless you have such an argument or such an account of 
how productive forces of labor factor in is a system that does not include those sorts of things in its scope. And I'm saying there is something provided by a competing economic hypothesis that is not in the hypothesis you specifically, Destiny, are advocating. If you do have a marginal theory that incorporates the productive forces of labor or takes that into account, fantastic. I would just need to hear the argument for how that accounts for the productive forces, because all you've said so far is that it does without really explaining to me why. It's literally just like the marginal product of labor. I mean, like I mean, wiki the definition, but like the, the the amount of output that you have is going to vary depending upon the cost of adding like more units of labor to something. Like this is that's this not is the like, same as marginal utility. When you talk about marginal utility, you're ultimately, like I've said a couple of times, you're talking about the rational desires of actors in an economy, right? That's you, what you're I, talking if you're, about. If you're going to define it like using something that only works under a Marxist theory and they say that I can't explain it, then sure. Marxist theory doesn't invoke marginal utility. I'm using the definition in the theory that you're espousing. Okay. Marx, you, Marx is Marx. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Can, you repeat, repeat, can you repeat that definition one more time? Okay, so the definition of marginal utility, right, yes. is just how actors in an economy um, express their desires for given goods or services outside the availability of that good. The example that's often given is water and diamonds, right? Water may have more utility than a diamond, but the reason that a diamond has more marginal utility is because it has a greater desire in a market, hence it has more marginal utility. And the mainstream understanding of marginal Wait, Why does it have greater desire in the market? Because just because diamonds are valued more. Because why more are they valued are, more? Because people have a greater desire for diamonds as luxury items compared to water, even though water you, you, has wait, more this, utility. This is not true, right? People have a far greater desire for water than they do for diamonds, right? They don't have a greater desire for the marginal utility of water. They have a greater desire for water in the sense that I have to drink water or I die, right? Obviously, I would agree with you there. But the but outside of that utility, right? The question is. What item is going to have more marginal utility, i.e., what item is going to have more desire in a market given the availability of it? And I'm saying that for that reason, the marginal utility of a diamond is obviously going to be higher, which is exactly what you see in markets, right? Generally speaking, a comparable amount of diamonds compared to a comparable amount of water will fetch a higher price. If I wanted, that's, if I had no, two tubs, if I had that, two tubs, if I had two tubs, one with water one with diamonds, right? You would presumably agree with me that the tub of diamonds is going to fetch a higher market price than the tub of water. All Absolutely else not. Absolutely not. This is just a total misreading of everything. I don't, I you disagree don't. that a tub of diamonds would be, would have a higher market price than No, it's not that water. I disagree. It's just you're absolutely wrong. If the supply of diamonds and the supply of water on the planet were equal, as you assumed when you said all else equal, the water would absolutely be valued more than the diamonds. The reason why the diamonds have a greater value is because there's a much greater scarcity. I can understand all of these relationships through uh, marginalism. I don't know how I would ever begin to understand these relationships through um, the labor theory. Value. Or maybe you're just going to say, oh, well, it doesn't explain any of this. But no, Wait, but given that's... all else equal, given all else equal, sure. with a, a bit, if, if the only thing that existed on this planet was a lake full of water and a lake full of diamonds, that everybody would be fighting nuclear wars over the lake full of water, not the lake full of diamonds, of course. Then you're just you're just talking about utility. You're not talking about marginal utility, right? I was careful when I was uh, expanding upon marginal utility to include the exact sort of understanding that would uh, factor for those sorts of things, right? Well, Obviously, the difference in marginal else, utility once, is going to disappear if there's an equal supply of both things, right? All well, well, then you're just you're talking about something again outside the scope of marginalism. If you're talking about all else being equal, two different things. That have you know one thing has higher utility. Well, you and I are both going to agree that in the scenario that you just hypothesized, 
Water is clearly going to have more utility than diamonds, but that's not what marginal utility is attempting to describe. Marginal utility is attempting to describe the change in the utility from the increase in the consumption of a good or a service, right? So diamonds are consumed far less, and by consumed, I just mean obtained, right? They're consumed far less than water, which is why in the United States, in the global capitalist market, if I have a tub of water and I have a tub of diamonds, right, that relative difference in consumption is going to make the diamonds fetch a higher marginal utility, ergo a higher market price I, I relative to the water. Yeah, I just I disagree analyzing it from the consumption side. I think that the supply side of this is is probably more important. I, real, I don't understand part. how you can disagree when you you presumably agree that a tub of diamonds is going to fetch a higher market price than a tub of water. And then the question is, well, what explains that since water has a higher utility than diamonds, water is more useful than diamonds. And I'm telling you that in the marginalist view, the answer is, as I've already defined, diamonds, according to the view that you agree with, have a higher marginal utility. That's the reason they fetch a higher market no, price. No, the reason why they fetch a higher price is because there's a lower supply of them. You're basically describing the same thing at that point then. If all you mean is the rate of consumption of a given good or service determines its ultimate market price relative to things that may have more utility, all else being equal, you're describing marginal utility as the way I provide it. I'm just saying something like that sort of description of the dynamic market prices is something that is covered and predicted by marginalism. It's also predicted, though not covered, by the labor theory of value. And okay, the, labor theory, you, the value, labor theory of value, and, value. And the labor theory of value includes something that is outside the scope of marginalism. Okay, let's say that for the labor theory of value, let's say that we can produce one tub of diamonds or one tub of water. Let's say that there is a desalination plant that's that we have to run in order to produce um, the water. Let's say that there's a mine that we have to produce in order to run the diamonds. Let's say that producing the um, let's say that producing the diamonds uh, creates much it, it takes much more work than producing the water. Would you say that the diamonds under the labor theory of value then are worth more than the water? And that if I what do you mean these, what do you mean takes more work? To produce the diamonds, more socially to make necessary, to... more socially necessary labor. And the question is, what would I say that the diamonds are more valuable? Yeah, it would, it would have more value. When you say value, are you talking about socially necessary labor time determining objective value, or are you talking about market price? Socially necessary labor, not price. I'm saying value. Okay, if you're just talking about objective value and something is harder to produce in terms of labor than something else, yeah, it would have more value according to the labor theory of value, but that's disconnected from two things. One, that's disconnected from the utility, and two, that's disconnected from market price. You can say something has more value in, the, in terms of the LTV, more socially necessary labor time went into the production and availability of that thing. And that doesn't, you know, that doesn't entail that you hold the belief it has more utility or it would necessarily fetch a higher market price. Okay. I have no idea why I would ever use the labor theory value for anything right now. I still haven't heard a reason why, but we've I've already explained that to you. The reason you would use the labor theory of value is twofold. It makes comparable predictions, novel predictions about the capitalist economy. Right. And then the other reason is that there's something in the labor theory of value that's being described that falls outside of the scope of competing economic hypotheses, namely marginalism. And that's how uh, value is factored into the productive forces of labor. As we've as we've talked about over the last like hour, marginalism is describing market prices. It is describing how market prices rise and fall. But that description is bereft of consideration of how the productive forces of labor factor into the value of commodities in a marketplace. So for two, of the, for, so for the first one, it doesn't make any predictions. The only thing it's predicting is a variable unique to its own theory. This idea of your understanding of value, right? That's the only thing it's predicting that isn't predicted by marginalism. And two, um, uh, that that fuck, that was the only thing I. 
That was the only thing. Can I you repeat what you said? Sorry. I, 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 the only prediction that you're giving me that it's able to predict is a, is a variable unique to its own understanding. I, so I don't understand how that, how, what value I have of that. No, that's not, that's not true at all. I literally just told you that the predictive utility is a correlation with market price, but what it's describing you no, no, internally, you can't say that because you've already said before that there are times where these what, things completely break what up. What it's describing internally within the theory is something that is not described by marginalism. The predictive utility of a theory and what the theory is attempting to describe or provide explanatory power for are two distinct things, right? They're not necessarily the same thing. I'm saying this. We have a theory, the LTV. The LTV is providing explanatory power for how the value of commodities relates to the productive forces of labor. And then in addition to that, though it's not necessarily talking about market price, it retains a correlation, a predictive correlation with market price, such that it still has predictive utility in a capitalist market economy. And then the question is, okay, we have something that has explanatory power for the productive forces of labor and something that doesn't. So on what grounds, right, would we say that marginalism is the de facto economic hypothesis that we should use, right? And let's grant that you were able to establish that marginalism is the de facto economic view. If that was established, then you could run the economic calculation problem and the local knowledge problem, but only then, because that's an implicit assumption made in the articulation of those problems. Can you give me a single example of this in, in practice? What is a prediction that it makes that, that isn't just the value that's inherent to its own theory? Can you give me a prediction, a reasonable on the ground empirical prediction that the labor theory of value can, can talk about that I wouldn't be able to account for with a marginalist understanding of things? Absolutely. The labor theory of value based on its understanding of value determined by socially necessary labor time predicts that over time, the amount of surplus labor value that capitalists will be able to extract through the labor of- Wait, 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 hold on. Before we do this, nothing contentious. Like, just give me like an on the ground analysis. Like, give me one thing that like, oh, like here is like an economic transaction that I don't really understand. But if I use the labor theory of value, oh, now this economic transaction makes way more sense. That's completely uncharitable. You're asking me to articulate okay. predictions I, so and, and it, I understand. I, so you can't. So you. I just. Can't, I just well, want to say wait, something real quick. Wait, wait. Because I just want to say something real quick. Because you, so you cut much. me off, right? I just want to. I just want to say something real quick. You're basically asking me to articulate a set of predictions and real world examples of what the labor theory of value is talking about, which I can provide, provide empirical support for. But then when I say something like, "Well, given that it's a prediction, right? It's going to be probable, not certain." Of course, it's not certain. It's a prediction predicated on empirical evidence, right? As all predictions are. The fact that it's not certain means somehow it's like not of value. Things that are predicted and are empirically supported and probable but not certain are still valuable. That's how science works. Obviously, everything is going to be an induction, not a deduction. So just to be clear, you can't give me a single economic transaction outside of a highly contentious claim that the rate of profits will fall to zero. You can't give me an analysis of any way to understand any market transaction, how any price arrived at um, using the labor theory of value. The only thing you can give me is- the, I don't. I, I guess I don't understand. Like When you say contentious, do you just mean there's empirical debate over it? Is that what you of mean course, by contentious? Not, of course. It's not, it's not something that is like universally agreed upon. It's not like everybody says, oh yeah, of course, the rate of profit will reach zero. Then you've nuked the you've you've essentially nuked the utility of every economic hypothesis in the world, including marginalism. Marginalism okay, so has empirical clear, challenges. You to can't. It. So to be clear, you can't give me a single example outside of the falling rate of profits, which is a Marxian concept. Even you can't give me a single example of how to analyze any economic transaction. I can give you value. I can give you other predictions that are made by the LTV, but the problem that we're running into is when you ask for some sort of like valuable insight provided by the LTV. 
you're also stipulating and requiring me to for it to not be contentious. And when you say not be contentious, you just mean there's no empirical debate surrounding it, which is fairly bad faith, no offense, because then that basically suggests that any economic hypothesis that makes a proposal that has empirical challenges to it is something that could not be utilized. And I don't accept that. We can talk about the predictions that it makes, but if you're just going to toss them aside because there are challenges to them, that's not particularly interesting. I can provide you with the evidence to support them if that's what you're interested in. Do you think that it makes your position, um, do you think it undermines your position that you supposedly have a theory that's supposed to relate all of the productive forces with commodities that are being produced, but you can't use this theory? You can only use it to maybe point towards something that is contentious that may or may not happen down the road? Why don't, why don't we do, look, I'm, I'm kind of, again, taking issue with what you're saying when you say contentious. So I, I'll, I'll render 11 predictions that the LTV makes, all of which have empirical backing. And then on purely conceptual grounds, if I say something that's confusing to you or there's something you disagree with in the verbiage, you can tell me what your problem is with those predictions one by one. But I'm trying to prove a point here in saying that even outside of the tendency for the rate of profit to fall, the theory still has predictive utility and has empirical backing. So I can render those predictions. That predictive utility is only over like grand economic problems down the line. I can't use it to understand anything about our system of of organization today. I can't use it to understand. I wouldn't say that's accurate. Okay, then then, then I'm asking if you can just give me an example of that. Not like here's 11 grand problems that- That's not what you said though, right? That is exactly what I said. What I exactly said um... is, is there some economic transaction today that you can use the labor theory of value to analyze? That is exactly what I asked for. Not can you give me an inherent contradiction of capitalism or some problem that may or may not come up 50, 100, 300 years from now. I want to know if there's some economic No, I'm not, I'm not talking about inherent contradictions. One I'm thing, talking I need about- to interrupt, gentlemen. Just, sure, go ahead. Just because we will probably go into the Q&A soon if we stick with mm-hmm. the normal format. And so just for the sake of uh, not taking any position on uh, what was requested or whatever else, but if we do just go with maybe just one example, just because that way we'll be able to jump into the Q&A after that example. Uh, one yeah, example sure. from Pogan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So outside of the tendency for the rate of profit to fall, here's another novel prediction. And when I say novel, it's not made by it's not a prediction made by competing economic hypotheses. Here's another novel prediction made by it, right? There's an increase in the physical ratio of machinery and raw materials to current labor as a secular trend not predicted by neoclassical theory. Neoclassical theory can't provide an ex post explanation of the causes of the observed increase in this ratio because it can't discriminate empirically between supply causes and demand causes. Or in layman's terms, right, there is no competing economic hypothesis that explains the change in value such that it can explain how that value changes as more and more machinery and more and more innovations and technological innovations are introduced to the mode of production. Marginalism Wait, how, can you explain that? How, what do you mean by that? What is not explained? Okay, even even further reduced than that, it's basically saying we can the LTV provides a novel prediction as to how the forces of production play into the value of goods and services in an economy. That's that's the how, basic how, how, how does this not work under a marginalist point of view? Can, can you give me give me a concrete example and, and just make up a hypothetical for how this doesn't work? So you're saying that if I have a factory and I introduce more and more capital to it, marginalism can't explain why it produces more goods and services or why it compensates labor differently? Or what, 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 what is the claim being made here that I can't understand it using like neoclassical economics or any, anything else? What, what am I, well, not, the pro- what am I missing? The, the problem you're going to run into with marginalism specifically is the same problem we had a little bit ago, which is that marginalism just waves its hands of productive labor considerations entirely. We've already been over what marginalism is specifically taking into account, and that's fine insofar as market prices go. But you yeah. asked for something. Just a second. Just just a second. 
You asked for something other than the, the tendency for the rate of profit to fall that is a novel prediction made by the labor theory of value. I warned you that if you just mean contentious in the sense that it has empirical debate around it, that's not going to be interesting, but that is one such prediction. That's not a prediction made by marginalism or any other competing economic hypothesis. So then your claim is that, I actually don't even know what the claim is. So you, you can't give me like a hypothetical situation. Can, 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 you, can you provide me a hypothetical situation that, that illustrates the point you're talking about? You'd have to be more specific. I can give you an example of how a factory introduces new machinery and new innovations and new technological marvels, mm -hmm. such that while simultaneously improving the efficiency of its output, improving the efficiency of labor, it also drives down the amount of profit that's able to be extracted as a direct consequence of that efficiency. Because in order to profit, you would have to have a comparable amount of labor, but you don't have that labor anymore because you have to, obviously you're putting in less labor because it's now more efficient. To produce yeah, because the labor is more efficient. We're using marginalist terms now. This still makes sense completely under marginalist analysis. Adding more efficient capital, or more capital allows your labor to work more efficiently, allows the commodities to be produced, the profit will decrease. Like, yeah, but marginalism isn't factoring in those sorts of things when it performs a calculation of price is what, I was, what I'm trying to say. Okay, I, you know, maybe I'm just not a marginalist. I, I don't, I don't know, I, I don't know enough about how this is being explained. I would be shocked if any person would ever say that when we're figuring out the final cost of a good or service, we're literally just not factoring in labor. That sounds extremely unbelievable to me. I've never, I've just never heard this in my entire life. I've heard so many papers related to, uh, to, to everything related to healthcare, related to immigration, related to rent. I've never in my life read any paper that's going over there like, oh, well, we're trying to figure out the cost of this. Um, we just, we have, we never ever factor in labor at all. I've, I've just never heard this in my entire life. It might be my lack of education or about I've never in my entire life uh, heard this explanation given before. Um, the, the, the cost that goes into producing a final good or service, labor is absolutely factored into that. It's, it can be one of the most important costs. Um, I, I don't understand this idea of, it, it, we just don't look at labor or the productive forces that go into producing a, a commodity or service, unless you're trying to say we don't look at the value of that in a Marxian way, which of course we don't, because that's a Marxian term. I'm not saying that you're not looking at it in a Marxian way. What I'm saying is something more akin to like, even though there may be considerations of efficiency in marginalism, ultimately the determination that marginalist makes with respect to price, which is marginal utility, is something divorced from consideration of the productive forces of labor, right? And you said a second ago that, well, maybe I'm just not a marginalist. There are other capitalist, let me rephrase, there are other market hypotheses that deal more exclusively with this sort of labor efficiency and, pro and labor productivity consideration. That's fine, but this is all within the purview of you running the economic calculation problem and the local knowledge problem, which, as I've pointed out a couple of times, depend on the implicit acceptance of marginalism as a correct economic <laughs> hypothesis, because sure. that's that's the theory that Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek were espousing when they rendered the problems. Um, OK, um, I don't know where you want to go from here or if you want to do the Q&A. This might be a great opportunity to jump into the Q&A. want to let you know, folks, our guests are linked in the description. We really, really do appreciate them. And so you can check out their links below. We're going to jump into this. But also want to give you a reminder, folks, if you've been listening this long, well, you must have enjoyed it. So hit that subscribe button and that notification bell as well as we have many more juicy debates coming up. And so this first one coming in from Thanks Sigma. And he says, Pepe, win, ye lose. Thanks to all for the debate. Appreciate that. Is that some, one of you guys an inside joke? Lance Plays, LOL, says, Destiny, 
Walmart and other big businesses solved the calculation problem with signals from every register. Internally, it's a planned economy. Read the People's Republic of Walmart. Yeah, this is argument is used over and over again. It's just really, really, really stupid. Um, the idea that you have like an technically in that case, literally every single thing is a planned economy. If we're going to use market inputs and outputs at the end of it, I mean, like then that means that every single market input and output, what's past that is a planned economy when you're allocating resources towards an input or output. I just I don't know why people try to use that as like an example of like, oh look, we've solved the we've solved this problem. I wouldn't use that as an example either because they obviously still respond to market forces. That's like like lefty one oh one bait. It's a really bad argument. You got it. And Khan the Stoner Lynn says, anyone familiar with the perfect with perfect competition? Um, fuck, there's actually a definition for this, but I don't remember. I, perfect competition is like when there's no monopoly, when everybody is competing evenly, everyone has equal market access and equal access to consumers and everything. I, I don't remember the exact definition of it, but. It's competition at perfect equilibrium, basically. Yeah. It's an, it's a theoretical thing. Gotcha. And this one coming in from Castizo says, question for Pogan, where does brand recognition and marketing fit into the labor theory of value? I mean, that's obviously something that's going to deal with like market prices and marginalism, right? I didn't, I don't think marginalism is wrong insofar as describing market prices. The reason why, you know, people prefer Apple iPhones to Androids, even though they're comparable products, some would even argue that an Android is better, is primarily driven by brand recognition for Apple iPhones. Apple is just more recognized, more desirable for social reasons, right? But the point is that that's, that's something that falls, again, outside of the scope of the labor theory of value. The labor theory of value is just describing the objective value of commodities as determined by socially necessary labor time. You got it. And thank you very much for this question from Red Ames Odd, who says to both, is it likely to implement a Marxist agenda in today's political environment without violent revolution and forced, quote unquote, re-education? What do you mean? I, I guess it depends on what he means by a Marxist agenda. I'm not over here telling people to like grab their AKs or anything. I'm not advocating revolution. I'm just saying something like I think there are problems intrinsic to the capitalist mode of production such that consideration of a subsequent economic system is warranted. And I think one of those possible systems is socialism. You got it. And thank you very much for your question. Bubblegum Gun says labor has no value. So exploitation cannot exist okay then you just disagree with the labor theory of value i mean if you disagree with the definitions of a scientific hypothesis that's fine it doesn't change the fact that it's it has explanatory power and predictive utility it's not it, it's like saying i disagree with the definition of space-time einstein renders in general relativity there's not really anything interesting about that objection gotcha and the optimistic pessimist says cap this is a, they're quoting it. They're saying capitalism equals private ownership of resources and decentralized decision-making using markets, also called the free enterprise system, unquote. Then they say destiny is not a real capitalist. Cool. Was that a question for me? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what I'm supposed to say to that. Gosh, you mean either. Sunseed says, was Destiny supposed to defend a position or just learn about communism? Let's see. Big fan. You got a fan out there, Destiny. So, 
Soldier of Science, and they say Hi Ray, by the way. Soldier of Science says, Destiny is a capitalist system which produces billionaires who have 90% of the wealth compared to the majority of society. Is that ideal? Um, I, I don't look at... The only thing that I look at in terms of what any economic system should do is it should produce the most that it can given some set of resources, um, whether the resources are natural resources, labor. Um, you want to see what most effectively and efficiently takes all these things to produce is the most you can produce. Um, whether at the end you end up with a moral or immoral outcome, I'm not really concerned about with the economy itself. Um, I'm more concerned with using government policy to alleviate that at the end. So if I, if I have a system that produces a ton of billionaires and people don't have enough money to eat, then the goal of any government policy ought to be the taxation of said billionaires um, and to redistribute that wealth to people in such a way that they can't afford that stuff. That, that would be the goal. Got you, and thanks for your question. Tom Rabbit says, Destiny, are you subscribed to Tom Rabbit for the Darth Dawkins content? And will you ever debate Darth Dawkins again? No, and fuck no. <laughs> Let's see. It's uh, Castizo says, Pogan, is your first name Joe by any chance? Um, no, but I, I forgot that I have a legal obligation to shout out Tom Rabbit. Uh, go watch Tom's content. He's a great dude. Gotcha. And M. Imran Khan says, Marxism sounds ideal, but I notice it can't be realistic or practical. One, classless society can't exist because society strives on creating hierarchies. And number two, it fails to consider scarcity of resources. So Marx does consider scarcity, but more interesting than that is the idea that hierarchies are somehow natural or intrinsic to human social development throughout history. Um, most of you have probably heard of a view called historical materialism, and the gist of that view is that political and social outcomes are a consequence of the material conditions that people exist in, right? So as an example, the reason people are greedy is not because they're intrinsically greedy or they intrinsically want to beat the shit out of each other for resources, Rather, it's simply because the forces of capitalism and capitalist competition incline people to engage in that sort of behavior. So under a historical materialist lens, it doesn't follow that hierarchies are necessitated or that they will always exist. It seems that hierarchies emerge primarily just as a consequence of material conditions. Gotcha. And this question coming in from Niav Smith, 19, says, let the record show that James could not give one real-world example of his theory being chosen over destinies. I'm not even debating. I don't, was that a joke? He means, I'm assuming he means me, I would, uh, I would hope. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. You want to respond to it, you can. So he, uh, he probably does. Um, I mean, there, there are nominally socialist societies in existence. The biggest examples are the Zapatistas in the Chiapas region of Mexico and Rojava. Um, but outside of that, I can agree socialism is not common and has, quote unquote, failed multiple times. But the explanation for that is not something as simple as, you know, socialism, bad XD Pepe emoji. It's more nuanced and it's going to have to deal with things like capitalist global hegemony, the forces exerted upon nominally socialist countries, internal bureaucratic mismanagement of resources, overemphasis on military expenditures and military might. It's more nuanced than just saying something like XD socialism bad, which seems to be the narrative that's most commonly thrown out in these sorts of discussions. Gotcha. This next one comes in from Asian Wolf, who says, question for Pogan, do you agree that dinosaurs are objectively better than frogs? Yes. 
And Brenda says, Pogan, how can the LTV be objective when value is subjective? Market price is a fact, not a value. You can never get to a fact from a value. Market price is not the same thing as value as Marx understood it, as I said a couple times earlier. Market price is divorced from what Marx understands value to be. Value in Marx's view is objective. It's not the same as a market price. Gotcha. Looking for any more questions to Destiny. We have most of these are for Pogan. So amazing. Doobie, thanks for yours, says just tell them both that I love them. Thanks. And folks, they're linked in the description. I highly encourage you go if you haven't already. What are you waiting for? Their links are waiting for you down below. This next one from Luis Romero says, Pogan, are you familiar with a 2002 paper by Andrew Kleeman? called the law of value and law of statistics using the ltv he was able to get correlations from random values or in parentheses spurious correlation i'm not familiar with the paper but send it to me either on twitter or discord um and i'll take a look at it gotcha it's just several more here the optimistic pessimist says can you ask the debaters to define capitalism in their own words each uh, my understanding of capitalism is that you basically have a private owner of a given firm, and then you have like some sort of market for them to transact in. Uh, private ownership of the means of production and um, accumulation of capital by the individuals who own the means of production predicated on the extraction of labor value from workers. Gotcha. And obviously a market, a market in tandem with that. Gotcha. And this one coming in from... Jacob Rose says, why has socialism yet to work? I mean, I kind of alluded to that already, but I think it's the, the, the orthodox Marxist view is that in order for socialism to happen, the weakest chains of capitalism would have to first be broken. And then the capitalist system as a consequence of that would have to meaningfully regress or begin to collapse. Um, so the Soviet Union and China, which is, of course, now capitalist, Cuba, which is starting to implement capitalist market reforms, Cambodia, all these examples that people tend to throw out are really examples of socialism in one country, meaning the global economic hegemony is not socialism. So I think um, I would agree insofar as so long as socialism is the, is the heterodox economic view, that is, it's competing with global capitalist hegemony, socialism will fail. Either it'll be reformed into capitalism through legislative practices, or it'll simply be crushed by imperialist capitalist forces, or more often than that, it'll just collapse due to a failure to compete with capitalist countries. Gotcha. This one comes in from DJ Angogeek. Says, to destiny, LTV seems to be a macroeconomic concept, so I doubt you can use... It to predict transactional prices which are microeconomic. LTV has nothing to do with macroeconomic or microeconomic anything. Those two terms have nothing to do with the labor theory of value. Gotcha. That's right. Next one comes in from Derek Wan asks for Pogan, Marx's assertion that only labor can create surplus value is unsupported. Any commodity can be picked to play a similar role justify why sh why we should pick labor oh wait actually can i ask a question i think this is a classic question so i think you might already know the answer to it but i don't know if i've ever heard a convincing answer to it um mm -hmm. and the labor theory of value how do you explain wine accumulating more value as it ages 
Um, I'm actually not familiar with that particular question, to be honest with you. That's something that I've been looking into more recently, and I haven't found any convincing answers. So I, I would probably just concede that it's something that requires further analysis. Um, I don't remember the guy's question, James, if you want to repeat it. Gotcha. Let me, I think it was right here. They said, LTV seems to be a macroeconomic concept, so I doubt were you talking about this one or the one that I just asked? The one you asked before Destiny's question. We can just move on if you forget it or you lost it. It's not a big deal. No problem. I'll jump into the next one. This one comes in from Divyanshu Kanwar. Thanks for your question. Said, can you please ask Pogan, what does he mean when he says productive forces of labor? Um, it's just referring to labor as it's used with respect to um, the means of production. So the means of production are anything that produce a tangible good or service that um, becomes a commodity. And then the productive forces of labor just refers to anything um, that is involved with labor as it pertains to the use of those means of production. So in a capitalist economy, the means of production are owned by capitalists privately, but the people who actually use the means of production to produce commodities are, of course, workers and laborers, right? They're employed by the capitalists. They use the means of productions, the means of production owned by the capitalists above them. Gotcha. And Garrett Bradford asked, Destiny, does it bother you that capitalism is a system which is based upon the principle of infinite growth? Productivity, as you put it, despite a world of finite resources. Um, I don't know. That's a really hard question to um, answer. Uh, I don't know if that's intrinsic to capitalism. Some point that capitalism needs a forward motion of growth in order to continue moving forward um, or in order to continue existing. Uh, a lot of people have claimed that capitalism will inevitably um, or not that capitalism, that growth will inevitably slow to zero. Um, I know that we keep getting predictions of like, oh, like maybe GDP growth of 1% is something we need to accept that, that, that it's going to continue to fall and fall, although that hasn't seemed to held up yet. Um, I don't know if we can continually create new services um, or new types of goods that override that, that, that maybe that is like an almost infinitely expanding thing or it works until the heat death of our son. I, I, I just, I don't know the answer to that. That's, this is something that um, uh, people have been arguing for a long time. I could be wrong, but I think like, for instance, when it comes to automation, I think that I want to say that there was a writing or a paragraph or something about where even Marx said that like the um, like the sewing loom would eventually put like all workers out of business. There wouldn't be enough work to go around or, or that people around that time were even saying that. Um, and then, you know, today we've had lots of other threats of like automation or, you know, like uh, Microsoft Excel. Theoretically, that one program replaces a full office full of people going through filing cabinets, you know. Um, I, I just I don't have a good answer for that. I'm sorry. That's a, it's a really rough problem. It's hard to know how technology will innovate in the future and continue to make it so we have jobs and things to do in our economy or continue to make it so they have ways to continue to grow. Gotcha. And Chess 119 says, ask Destiny if the human rights violations committed by the United States, such as genocide of Native Americans and dropping of nuclear bombs, are because capitalism is bad. Um, I think that lots of people have committed lots of wrong things in history. I don't think that it is just because of capitalism or just because of any, like, terror, terror. they were socialist imperialist countries, uh, you know, Venezuela, Bolivia, Cuba, the USSR, China, like, there have been plenty of imperialist countries that don't necessarily run under a capitalist economy. So I don't, you know, I, I think that imperialism is a thing that is intrinsic to probably any country that is trying to export an ideology or gain favor around the world or whatever. Gotcha. And Vike275 says, Oh, okay. Can I, can I, do, you, do you mind if I quickly just make a comment about that, James? Sure, it's fine pithy. If I um, it, it's it's going to be difficult to say they're imperialist to the extent that capitalist nations are, because although yes, the the Soviet Union and other countries that were nominally socialist have expanded, socialist have expanded into other parts of the world. Um, 
the Soviet Union in particular, and to a lesser extent, China funded anti-imperialist activities all over the place, including Cuba, right? They were actively opposed to imperialism engaged in by not only capitalist countries, but more authoritarian fascistic countries as well. So maybe you can make a claim that they did invade other countries, seize territory, but the sort of imperialism they were engaged in is nowhere near to the extent of the imperialism engaged in by capitalist nations. Wait, what do we mean by that? Wait, why? Just in, just in terms of the amount of territory seized, the amount of conflicts initiated, the amount of... But the uh, amount of territory seized might be a function of the success or power of that country. It's kind of like when people say, like, oh, the U.S. commits more crimes than any other country. Well, of course, the U.S. is like is the largest country in terms of like military presence and everything. Like, yeah, I'm not necessarily saying the explanation is that they're just swell people. I'm not a tanky. I don't like the Soviets or the Chinese or anything. I'm just saying something... I'm just saying something like... I'm just saying something like... I'm just saying... No, 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 I, the, I know, I know, I know. I'm not saying you did. I'm saying something like, regardless of the explanation, the point is... Socialist, nominally socialist, socialist countries have engaged in nowhere near the same degree of imperialist or warmongering or war hawkish actions as capitalistic and, um, we'll say, U.S. allied countries have. We have a juicy question or several left. The optimistic pessimist says, can you ask Destiny why he won't debate real academic free market capitalists such as David Friedman or Yaron Brook? Because anarcho-capitalist people are fucking cringe as fuck. I don't like the whole like unmitigated or unregulated everything in the economy is will be the ultimate people's republic. I don't, I just, I don't know. I say all this shit. Uh, maybe they become more popular on the internet. Maybe I'll have a conversation with them. But you know, right now the only thing libertarians are good for on the internet, I guess, is our shouting about the age of consent. Otherwise, I don't know why anybody else like screams that they're libertarian. It's boring shit. You got it in Vike two seven five. Thanks for. They, uh, they grabbed that question that got lost on us or on me. So they said it was this question, namely for you, Pogan, I think this is the one you asked to be repeated. Marx's yeah. assertion that only labor can create surplus value is unsupportive. Any commodity can be picked to play a similar role. Justify why we should pick labor. Because surplus value is defined as the labor that's exerted in excess of what a worker needs to sustain themselves and be ready for the next day of work. It's like, again, I, I gave this analogy earlier. It's like asking, you know, oh, why does Einstein define space-time the way he does? The point is, like, it's defined that way within the context of a scientific hypothesis to make a broader explanatory point. You can, you can use surplus value in whatever way you like, Right. It's just that surplus value as the way um, in the way that Marxists describe has a specific relation to the extraction of labor. You got it. And this one just came in. Black Omega says, Pogan, how would you incentivize other countries to adopt a socialist economy when they would just have more growth from capitalism? I don't think it's 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 even wise to attempt socialism in the current geopolitical climate, primarily because the current global economic hegemony is capitalism. I think capitalism will reign supreme for quite some time. That said, as I explained in this debate, there are certain internal contradictions within capitalism such that eventually consideration of a subsequent system is warranted. That's all I'm saying. I'm not telling people to revolt right now. I'm not saying we can achieve socialism before I die. I'm a 23-year-old. I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime. I'm just saying one day, just like feudalism, capitalism will collapse. And when that day comes, we need to have the groundwork in place for a subsequent system that does not suffer from the same pitfalls as capitalism. 
Snowfats, thanks for your question as well, said, if I put labor into a thing that you don't want, i.e. mud pies, it's socially unnecessary and doesn't add value. Is it valuable if it does have utility to someone else, but not me? I don't know that the question is weird. It's only it's only going to have socially necessary labor value insofar as it's a commodity. And what it means to be a commodity is that it has exchange value. And what it means for it to have exchange value is that it's qualitatively desired by rational actors in a market economy. So in the situation that guy's describing, no, nobody wants a mud pie. It's not a commodity and a, and a commodity doesn't have labor value. Gotcha. And with that, that's all for our questions. Want to say thanks, everybody, for your questions. Most of all, thank you to our guests. It's been a true pleasure to have you, Destiny and Pogan. And also, folks, if you haven't already, they're linked in the description. What are you waiting for? You can click on those links right now. And you can also click on them if you're listening via podcast reminder. But thank you, Destiny and Pogan. It's been a great time. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.